Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the second part of our look at Richard Matheson's classic, I Am Legend. I am Matt. I am Dave. Hello. This uh, this part, we'll be reading from chapters 9 to 16. Uh, so it's the sort of second of a three-part uh, read-through of... Uh, of I Am Legend, we basically take the book, break it down into into bits, little bits, talk about them, almost like a sort of page by page guide, and uh, and see what we get. So when we last left uh, Neville, who's the uh, the protagonist in this, he was uh, all alone, as he has been for the entire book, in a world of vampires, sitting thinking about how miserable things are, but a little kernel of hope as well, and he just basically recovered from a really I don't know. He'd almost lost everything, yeah. and uh, and he's just sort of in the in the words of Alan Partridge, bouncing back now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, strangely enough, the the parallels between this book and Alan Partridge were not immediately evident <laughs> to me when I was reading this. So, this is why I love Charlotte Live Royal because we sit down and and you you know you draw out the subtext, the um, well, well, the Partridge subtext. There you go. So, uh, chapter nine. Okay, um, the time for fun is over. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll stick a hat on it. Because this is this is a flashback, uh, and uh, Neville's wife is. Ju- this is the point in the story. He sort of remembers the point now, back in the history where his wife actually died. We 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 had a flashback before where his wife was sick, and they were talking about whether or not to send his daughter to school. And this is obviously a, a short while after that. Um, his wife's just li- very recently died, and he basically sits by the body for an hour without really doing anything. And also remembers he also remembers this horrible like memory within a memory where he uh, he thinks about how he, he's taken his daughter's body to this pit where they burn all the bodies and had it taken off him. Yeah. So so she's gone from merry little schoolgirl to dead um, within a couple of pages uh, without uttering a single line of dialogue <laughs> yeah she never got the chance to even she, speak she never even got the chance Matt <laughs> uh, but yeah and, and then he decides that he doesn't want to uh, he, he, to put it mildly he wasn't best impressed with the, uh, with the burial customs of this uh, new fire pits last time they basically ran up and Sort of took I think the, that's fairly legit because he did say it as though, like the way he described the experience of having his daughter taken out of his arms, was like sort of. I found something incredibly chillingly satirical in it because you mm. can kind of imagine that sort of that sort of you know council office, uh, you know the person who's just there marking time until they retire in thirty five years time, kind mm. of kind of customer service level where it's like what do you want go away i'm here to file this Mm. and you could just see it becoming easy for sort of a municipal employee to get into a headspace where it's just like i burn children that's what i do give me your child yeah fuck off he he says breathtakingly cold yeah he says she took he he took her off him you know this was just a bag of rags and yeah. um, and he, th- he obviously doesn't want this to happen to his wife as well. So he decides yeah. he's going to me- he's going to bury her. And obviously, normally that's fine. But uh, under these circumstances, it seems that uh, he bumps into someone in the street slightly, in a bit, slightly after this, where he says it's the law now that you have to burn the bodies. 
you can't and wow. people he even says people have been shot for trying to bury their loved ones yeah and that there are people kind of keeping guard on the gates of cemeteries in case people want to do that mm. holy now, he, crap yeah now he goes to he needs a car and he doesn't have one of his own because he always gets left to work with Ben Cortman good old Ben Cortman hey. good so, old Ben <laughs> So he goes over to uh, to Ben's place next door to try and ask to borrow his car. Turns out, uh, it, I thought originally they were dead, but I think they're just very sick and they're sort of getting to the stage where they're going to die. But Ben and his wife are just laid out on the bed, not moving. His wife's got a bite mark on her neck. Yeah, and- a wife, his wife's got a bite mark on her neck. And I was like, "Oh, right, here we go." Bit, bit, you know, we're into Dracula territory. But then he just mm. sort of walks out again and takes the takes the car keys away. Mm. And I think it's a sign of the tension that was already in me about this, where I was like, you know, there's bite marks on the neck, and I'm like, "Oh God, here it comes!" It was like sure. being at the top of a roller coaster and then discovering that you've still got like 500 meters left to climb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he takes it. He, he wraps his bo- his wife's body up in a in a sheet and takes her to just. It's just a sort of a a secluded place uh, where no one's going to see him, and he buries her. And later that night, classic horror scene, he um, is sitting sort of just, I don't know, contemplating his memories, and the the doorknob starts to turn. Uh, Somebody's come back to the house, and of course, when he opens the door, it's his wife who's just come clawing away out of her own grave. Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, man. I, I do, You say, of course. I suppose it had to be in hindsight, but at the time, I was like, because of everything that we'd seen, because we'd seen Virginia buried before, yeah, and buried in a way that kind of implied that she had not yet become a vampire, right? Yeah. Um... So I had I had assumed that she had just never raised from the that she you know died died, mm. um, died for good, and so she wasn't one of the dead zombies or one of the alive zombies, um, and so I was genuinely shocked when it oh, was right. her. I I was I was like what the I was expecting to be faked out and then it turned out to be you know you know quite conventional, but again that really works if. If conventional is a surprise, then it works as a surprise, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, were you so you weren't surprised by this at all then? Well, I was kind of expecting it just because um, I think you you can expect it if you pick up on the differences when he when he goes to see his wife's body in the crypt, he goes into a crypt and it's this her, her body's sealed in this in this sort of tomb with a, a load of sort of garlic around it, um, and obviously that's a very different location to the place he buries her originally. Um, which is just this secluded spot, nowhere near the cemetery. So mm-hmm. you can sort of, you could sort of, I suppose, put two and two together there, thinking, well, he's burying his wife in a place where we know she doesn't end up. Uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough, yeah. Although technically, right. he could have dug her up and moved her, but um, I suppose know. no, you, no. Obviously, that argument's very strong. Um, I tell you, I tell you what actually struck me the most about this passage, though, is. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Like, that description of the grief that overcame Neville when he realised his wife was dead, Mm. I can't think... I've read a lot of books. I can't think of another book anywhere in literature, you know, sci-fi, horror, mainstream, whatever, 
which has captured that so well mm. like totally like like pulled me into it by my teeth yeah um and i i can't i don't realize something about it like it's just this incredible evocation of all of that grief really powerful and um and i realized that like maybe that's what horror is supposed to be because i'm used to dismissing horror because it's just cheap sort of like you know it's there to creep you out and it's there to make you you know and the, the aim of the guy writing it is to be quite pulpy and quite dumb really and they're quite proud of being quite dumb you know yeah um whereas uh you know this is kind of schlocky idea of you know if there's lots of blood then it's great you know that sort of garth merengue thing yeah where whereas this is actually this is just like the horror comes directly from extremely plausible well-written human characters placed in an extraordinary situation Mm. and and that is like holy crap like i can i can now see how horror fiction is supposed to be kind of like art Mm. whereas before I was always like, no, horror fiction is just sort of, it's like a bag of Skittles, you know, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to, it's never going to illuminate what you think about the world. It's going to make you better at doing stuff or kind of show you something you never knew before. It's just going to show you what it might feel like to have an undead person run at you down a corridor and rip your face off. (laughs) You know, like I've just never really been moved by it, but this genuinely moved me. Yeah. I also thought the the end uh, puts the seemingly um ridiculously fascist dictat of having to burn your loved ones into a bit of perspective yeah that, um i suppose that kind of demand isn't quite as uh, as horrible if the alternative is your loved ones are going to get back up and come come after you <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean exactly and and that itself tells us something about neville as well doesn't it and how how you know how in pain he must be to totally ignore the fact that that's what's probably going to happen, mm. and go and bury his wife anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, just hoy, heavy but good. <laughs> and then and then it ends on this almost B movie note of, I mean, it's it like it it deserves an award for the most most effective use of an ellipsis <laughs> this year. Like just because he opens the door and the last word of the chapter is. Robert, <laughs> and it's the creepiest fucking thing. And that sort of crap—that's creepy anyway. You could put that in, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Twenty Four, and it'd be creepy. But mm. here, because it's been preceded by all of this emotional stuff, it's got like a weight to it, which I just totally wasn't expecting. It's a yeah. complete cliche made completely fresh. Yeah, and there are so many. I can think of a few just off the top of my head. Um, scenes or uh, episodes like this that other books or uh, more recent films or television have have used this this scene in for example you know you've got if if you watch the walking dead the first episode of that some guy's wife is trying to get in the house and is turning the doorknob uh, in mm. Stephen King's book like pet cemeteries about this kind of thing and oh, uh, right yeah so it's it's become sort of a and I, I suppose even when we've done that that zombie book, I, I got real echoes of. Do you remember the the, the passage with the woman living at the top of the uh, oh, top of the block of flats, and that Creepy. girl comes back? Yeah, it's just such a. It's always a such a chilling scene. This isn't. It? It's not a surprise that it's used so often in horror. Yeah, um, 
chapter 10 we, we flash back to the present uh, so we I suppose that does, that doesn't really make particular sense so chapter 10 we're back in the present and <laughs> uh, Neville's off to the library because he decides to try and research this uh, this phenomenon a bit more carefully um, mm. I, there's something that struck me here when he's wandering around the library trying to pick out a few books on blood and later he's he's got to get a microscope and he, he picks up a microscope the first one he finds it's, it's rubbish so then he has to go back out and find a book on microscopes to find the right microscope to even start researching yeah. and everything's an uphill struggle but um, yeah. this is where it's very different from the film version of this is yeah. that in the in the film Robert Neville's this like hot shot Science, government scientist that's yeah. been working on the cure here is just a bloke who's been working in what seems to be a power plant and yeah. now he's suddenly got to try and become <laughs> this, this genius scientist and yeah. I, I don't know about you but I like that much more mm. um, like I, I much much more because there's something in that which makes this book like proper science fiction like fiction about science um, because the huge chunks of particularly this bit that we're doing today are filled up with him experimenting, yeah, and yeah. you know, and kind of documenting the sort of attempts at this this mind that's falling apart to perform rational reasoning and actually kind of succeeding in that, and mm. like it manages to make a thriller literally out of the scientific process. So like where sci-fi, where we're used to sci-fi being. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's on a spectrum of the soft sci-fi and hard sci-fi and stuff, and, and a lot of it is very, very good. But I'm still used to kind of sci-fi having this weird equivalence with, like, spaceships, mm. which are often, you know, just plot devices to have something happen an awfully long way away. Whereas this is, like, this is the hardest of hard sci-fi, even though it's about vampires, because <laughs> it's got him working out how to build a microscope and going to the library and doing his research and finding out about bacteria and germs and all of this. And it's just like, this is fantastic. This is, of all the things I wouldn't have expected sci-fi to encompass, actual scientific method is amongst the top three. But And yeah, here it is, and it really works. Yeah, and it's interesting because there is all this. He's going through to the library, picking out a few books, reading up on things like germs and bacteria and trying to work out how it all fits together. But at the same time, you're right, you have this this genuine, this general sense of him losing his mind as well. He, he sits in the... He goes back out of the library and gets in his car. He's parked illegally, and he sits there shouting policeman for a bit and then drives off laughing hysterically. <laughs> Just because of <laughs> how crazy it is that to, to have a policeman around these days, and it yeah. just—I I really loved that as a, just another insight yeah. into his, how he's becoming unhinged. Yeah. Um, this issue of a, what's causing it is, is what's driving—he's driving that now, and he's thinking about germs and bacteria, and he thinks that could be because the because the virus spread so because whatever it is spread so quickly, um, he. He thinks it must. It can't be just from bites. It must be airborne, maybe. But at the mm. same time, he's thinking, well, if it's germs, how do you explain things like the cross and the stake? Um, yeah, because that that doesn't really doesn't connect. So he's he's really struggling to to get his head around it. So it's a monumental task, isn't it? And this is what the next few yeah. chapters is really about, isn't it? Yeah, and and it, it's again, it makes a thriller out of it because what you're seeing is a guy 
you, you, I don't know about you, but I kind of became aware of this idea of like the human race. You know, if the human race has survived, it needs this kind of resourcefulness. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of, you know, I, you place yourself in the place of the protagonist. And so I'm looking at this and going, could I, from first principles, derive epidemiology? I, you know, I'm not certain. I, you know, I'd wait for the, I'd sit and play Mario Kart until I wait for the power to go off, and then I'd just sort of wait for it all to be over. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> escape to Mario Kart. <laughs> it would no, but I mean honestly, I think there is a habit. Maybe, maybe this is maybe I'm just more of a flake than many, but I think mm. perhaps there is a thing where the idea of deriving things from first principles was was plausible in 1955 or was 56 whenever this was published mm. and nowadays it's just totally crazy like mm. imagine imagine coming up with the idea for a microchip all by yourself mm. you, you know or, or ensuring power is generated all by yourself you know um and that sort of thing like i think i think you know the structure of modern society means that many of us can't really do that stuff anymore it's interesting but it's like a on a, a in a similar way there was a story around recently about how uh, sales at places like B&Q and DIY stores are, are falling because people sort of, of of a younger generation don't really know how to do it and just yeah. get just get sort of tradesmen in. So yeah. back in the day, you'd paint your house or you'd do all your DIY stuff or you'd make stuff. You People just don't do it anymore because it's cheaper to just get someone in. It's uh, a really and, interesting shift that, isn't it? Because yeah. I think I think two generations back, it was like if you can afford it, get a guy in to do it. And then I think a generation older than us would have been like, why would I pay a guy to do it? There's a paintbrush, there's my house, and I'll save some money. And now mm. it's not so much like a, a function of cash as it is a function of total ineptitude. <laughs> I don't know how to put up a shelf. Please come and put up a shelf for me. <laughs> yeah, because most most DIY things, even for me, I would say first point of call is ask dad. <laughs> I'm not sure how to do it. Yeah, that's actually true, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely what I would do as well. Precisely because I think our parents' generation had a very sort of, you know, get it done. Yeah. You know, I, for, for, for saving money, if for no other reason. Because um, I remember changing... We're more adept in laziness than we are in handiwork. Yeah, <laughs> they, I mean, Dave, do you remember the utter shambles that was us trying to change a tyre on my car? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I do remember that, yeah. I remember I remember working at it for a good, I don't know, 45 minutes, hour, and ending up having to leave you with a stranded car because I had to go somewhere. Yeah. And, and what was it? You, t- you, you phoned me a couple of days later and told me how it had got resolved. <laughs> Yeah, I'd um, read, well, long, we won't go into it now, long story, which revolves basically around ineptitude on both our parts. But <laughs> I think the facts that we need to remember from that whole sorry episode is eventually I did change the time. <laughs> and That's true. Although, <laughs> That's putting the most positive possible spin on it. And, and you know, I, I support you in that, obviously, because I'm complicit <laughs> in this total failure. Um <laughs> But uh, but in the context of this book, I think the salient thing is that we couldn't have done anything about that if it wasn't for the continued functioning of the mobile phone infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, so ch- chapter 11 uh, is this continuing uh, experimentation. And the main thing that we draw over here is he's thinking, yeah, maybe this was, a, maybe the vampire is actually just a, just some kind of virus or germ which is spread 
um, and then you have various epidemics through history. Um, any quotes like the fall of Athens and the Black Death as possible historical yeah. ev- vampire events. The problem with that, of course, is there's no vampire, there's no sort of historical evidence of vampires directly connected to those events. You'd think one or two people would have written about it. Um, <laughs> so there's a bit of a gap there. But he's, you know, he's he's slowly feeling his way towards some kind of conclusion. And he says he's actually happy now. He's not drinking much because he's got a job to do. And I think mm. it's like when uh, we saw a few chapters ago when he was repairing his house, he was happy then. The problems yeah. come when he hits a brick wall, uh, has nothing else to do, and then just slips into despair. Yeah. Um, which is what happens in chapter 12 because yeah. he, he he tries uh, effectively experimenting by combining that chemical from garlic with a, a sample of blood to see if it does anything and it doesn't and yeah. he can't understand why and eventually yeah. he just gives up and just goes on a three day drinking bender because he's just no so kidding. depressed it's no, just really what, hard isn't it yeah well I tell you what I am no stranger to people talking about drinking because I'm English Mm. Um, but there's a bit like I w- this was for the second time this week when we when I was reading this I was like this is incredibly powerful evocation of that sort of emotional core of alcoholism right mm. you know he's talking about a feeling of complete dependency or or desire for oblivion and stuff and I've read stuff that touches on that before but again Richard Matheson puts several pages into it. And I really, I felt it, you know? And there was some stuff in that which I thought was interesting because he he was kind of saying stuff which I thought was kind of a truism, like, you know, about, you know, dependence and, and uh, you know, having nothing left to live for. And, um, you know, uh, there was one particular line which could have come straight out of Alcoholics Anonymous. But, of course, in the 50s, Alcoholics Anonymous didn't exist. And the idea of alcoholism wasn't wasn't really acknowledged as a thing. You know, it was the idea of the functioning alcoholic was still a was still something that was thought to be possible, right? Mm. Um, and so, this was the first moment, as well as being a great piece of writing. This was the first moment where I sort of felt like it, it felt a little bit anachronistic. Um, yeah. it, it, it only because it it felt the need to properly explain alcoholism whereas nowadays almost everybody understands the idea right you just pick it up yeah yeah i suppose yeah. in a way that puts it ahead of its time as well doesn't it the absolutely yeah i mean it's, issues. i suppose i don't I, I yeah i definitely don't mean anachronistic as a bad thing here i just mean it's from a different age i suppose like it was yeah. the first time where i was conscious that this was from a different age because up till this mm. point it's felt incredibly fresh you know modern world minus microchips really is what it's been and and you know all the characterization and the the layout and everything has been extremely believable yeah the thing that brings him back round out of this drunken uh, stupor is uh he sees he wakes up one day to see a dog on the, on the lawn in the middle of the day on his lawn so it's out in the daytime it's obviously <gasps> not dead uh, not a not a vampire dog, which oh, he speaks about, but we've never sort of seen any of those, luckily. Um, yeah. And just the fact that, I mean, his reaction to this shows how lonely he is and how there is something that I didn't really grasp until this moment is it seems there's just almost no life around. I don't know what's happened to the birds or other animals, but it seems that 
Just well, it's just him and death, isn't it? That is an excellent point. And yeah, him and death is such a great summary of the sort of horror of this. Um, and and it, it also, on a slightly lighter note, raises the possibility that the animals themselves, all of them, have become vampires somehow, like hmm. birds and cats and earthworms. I mean, <laughs> just, just imagine earthworms. it. A vampire earthworm moving really slowly but intently towards your jugular vein. <laughs> I just imagine it with its its little tail wrapped round sort of a, a wine glass. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you've gone instantly to the really suave kind of evening dress kind of thing about Dracula. I love the idea of it. <laughs> or a vampire that turns into a worm. <laughs> like some vampires turn into bats, other vampires turn into worms. Yeah. It's just like you don't really know when you become a vampire what kind of... It's like a roulette. You don't really know what kind of animal you're going to become. And you just the first time the full moon comes out or whatever, you're sitting there with your with your uh, your fingers crossed, just going, please a bat, please a bat, please a bat. I take a cougar or a tiger or a rhinoceros or a... I'm a fucking budgerigar. The fuck's up with that? Oh, what? <laughs> I want my money back. This isn't what I was given to understand being a vampire was all about. And then somehow yeah. you're given the sort of like supernatural ability to make literally any animal form suave. And just, you know, so you got all of these, all of like, you got like guinea pigs and chinchillas just kind of lounging around in impeccable evening dress holding a brandy and trying to chat up women. <laughs> and that's a book that needs to be written. You and me, Matt, we're going to write that book. <laughs> uh, so he he feeds the dog. He leaves some food out for the dog, and he he thinks this you know, if he could just somehow manage to sort of gain this this dog's trust and have it you know become his pet, it could be all the difference to sort of keep him sane and actually give him something to live for, just some kind of life. To be honest. Um, and he actually finds himself praying for the dog uh, to, that it's going to be safe uh, that night. And he's sort of rather surprised that he's even doing that, but it's just, I suppose, a sense of his desperation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's the word that echoes throughout this whole passage in it, really, is just this ache, total desperation. Yeah. Now, chapter 13 is pretty much all about him trying to gain this dog's trust and coax it into the house uh it's funny because when he's when he's sitting watching the dog as he is slowly beginning to sort of come and feed next to his uh, on his porch he considers that only a combination of sort of luck coincidence and skill have kept this animal alive and i thought that was quite a quite a nice parallel with exactly what's happened to him as well because you'd imagine yeah. um yeah. there would be plenty of people who were as skillful as uh, as as Robert Neville, but yeah. you know you need that com that sort of run of rolls of sixes to survive the initial outbreak as well, as well as the yeah. fact that he's immune, which doesn't hurt. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's one point where he's he sits out for the dog. For a while, the dog comes to the porch, eats, and then leaves. 
and at one point he's sitting daydreaming about it and he's sort of snapped out of it as Ben Cortman's sprinting up the drive shouting Neville and he's got to run back in and, and close the door again. Do you reckon one day Ben Cortman's going to work out not to yell the man's name and just run to him and eat him? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, can you imagine Ben Cortman every time he goes, Neville, and <laughs> Neville gets out of a hole again, just walking <laughs> away and in a kind of vampire-y sort of a way going, damn, every time, somehow he knows that I'm coming. It's, it's as if somebody <laughs> yells his name. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a faint smack of sort of Laurel and Hardy to that again, isn't there? Uh, there is actually, the isn't there? <laughs> I, I get the impression that Cortman, he just can't help himself because so often Neville, uh, uh, Robert Neville's so careful. Just mm. um, whenever whenever he isn't, he's just so excited, he just can't help but shout, Neville! And then goes running up to him. <laughs> and well, like, course, so, like somebody who just really, really, really loves food and whenever they walk <laughs> into a buffet, they go... Lunchtime. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, but of course the buffet is uh, is on legs and can run away. So, um, <laughs> the he, he gets closer and closer to getting this dog's trust, and then uh, one day the dog doesn't turn up, and a few days later he finally, you know, uh, and he's the, the guy's frantic, and then when the dog mm. finally does turn up. He's obviously sick, and he must have been bitten or something. Yeah. And in sort of desperation, uh, Neville catches the dog and takes it inside, and he does eventually gain its trust over the next day or two, and he says, I'm going to help you, but he can't. And we end with this rather crushing line at the end of this chapter saying, you know, less than a week later, the dog was dead, and that was that. Yeah, yeah, and... and that again that's really powerful because he's been so painstaking in showing you how important the dog is to Neville mm. and um you know and he's just totally desperate you know um but at the, at there was a moment during this thing where he's running after the dog and the dog's running away where I was like yeah I wonder what that must look like <laughs> um you know like I, I know he's the protagonist but the dog doesn't mm. um you know and uh, and I I I suspect that will become more well that that does become more pertinent a little bit later on in this section um yeah. but but for now this this was the 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 third the hat trick of the really difficult incredibly emotionally engaging pieces of writing in this bit there's the his response to the death of his wife and the burning of his daughter there's the um there's the the descent into into oblivion really um uh and then there's this his just total keening need for human connection mm. or any kind of connection living connection um i was just really sad i tell you what as well I, because obviously in the back of my head throughout all of this is the will smith movie and while i thought that movie was fairly good compared to the book it's nothing mm. um uh, but I was thinking about this because this, there is a scene which is very similar to this in the book where Will Smith has to strangle his dog because his dog's become a vampire, right? Mm. And and it's really heartbreaking and actually really well played. But I was kind of waiting for that to happen, for there to be a moment where the, he and the dog became friends before he had to kill it. Mm. And, and there's something much chillier about the way this book handles it where the dog comes inside, the dog freaks out, Neville says lovely things to the dog and watches the dog die. Hmm. It's just much more bleak. Yeah, it very is. Very much. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, I mean, there, there is. We'll do. I think we should, we'll do at the end of the next uh, the next cast a, a proper comparison with the film as well, because there are some really interesting, uh, yeah, interesting similarities and uh, obviously really big uh, differences as well between the two, which we've yeah, uh, yeah. touched a couple of them already. Um, mm. But yeah, that's so that the next chapter you're almost expecting another relapse for for Neville. Now we expect him to go on another long drinking session or something but what actually happens is he he has another bit of a breakthrough with uh with trying to work out how this disease works and what's caused it mm. and it comes from this memory he has of immediately after his wife died he was spent a, a, a like an evening just walking along the street and he got dragged into a, a tent by this guy and it's oh, basically yeah. this evangelical um sort of prayer meeting but like one of those really sort of rowdy ones and obviously there's a there's obviously there's this sense of panic to it as well as people are crying yeah. for you know for calling on god for mercy and things like that and it leads him to think to wonder whether a combination of that and the a lot of the stuff that was going around in the press at the height of the the outbreak um, mm. actually had an effect on the disease so when yeah. people got the disease and died from it and then came back to life they started acting like vampires basically because that's what they thought they were supposed to do because they've been conditioned mm. to do it and yeah. he, i think he uses this phrase is it sort of group uh hysteric- so, uh, mass hypnosis Ma- uh, yeah or like mass yeah. hysterical blindness or something like that oh yeah 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 and and this yeah. was this is like this was, i thought this was a fascinating idea yeah, and I'm, again, like, it feels fresher than most vampire fiction that has succeeded it, or most mm. vampire fiction that I've connected with. I'm no expert. But I'm familiar with the cliches of the genre, and this is not the cliche of the genre. Mm. And and it could be that it turns out to be nonsense, that it's just another theory that comes up and gives him hope for a day, and then and then he leaves it behind, you know. Yeah, but it um, but it really it, it it can explain all of those problems. It can explain the fear of crosses because that's what you you know it's the opposite of what you were hoping using as your as hope yeah. in in life. Yeah, the yeah. the garlic. I mean, yeah, there's no physical reason for for the garlic repelling zombies. It doesn't do anything to the blood. It's not poisonous to them. But if it's yeah. a mental thing, as much as it can be when you're dead, yeah. that you're expecting it to drive you off, so it does. Yeah. And he says he also remembers in one of the earlier days when he was sheltering in the house, he saw this, this really weird sort of almost <laughs> blackly comic thing of this guy shinning up a lamppost, flapping his arms and jumping off because he expects <laughs> to turn into a bat. And he thinks, well, that makes sense as well now suddenly. Yeah, well, and, and you know, explains why on the way past you heard him just go, I'm Batman. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't know whether I bought this, because I think there's, there's kind of logical failure here. It would require absolutely everybody who got sick to experience exactly the same um, delusion. Because hmm. it's, a, it's a really solid thing. It's solid enough that you started building science on it that everybody is afraid of garlic and everybody is afraid of crosses and everybody hmm. is afraid of mirrors and all that. Um, and so I'm, I'm a bit, I'm sceptical because I don't think that even the creation of mass hysteria could have created such a consistent behaviour set in absolutely everybody, mm. you know. Um, 
Tell you what's interesting as well, though, actually, was his whole thing about the place of, of journalism in it, what he calls yellow journalism, meaning um, cheap, trashy, um, low-integrity journalism, mm. right? Um, and um, I, I just found that really interesting because he said something in there which, again, is incredibly prescient and I think doesn't reflect terribly well on the way certainly print media is these days, where he says, you know, when when it became clear that something terrible was happening and people were coming back from the dead, newspapers just went out to make money off of it. Mm. You know, they reported it in such a way that there was there was a huge financial upside to them in it. Um, and if Neville's right, then you know that played a substantive role in the in the disintegration of society. Yeah, <laughs> and like um, yeah, I just thought that was quite that was that was. That was fairly close to the bone for me because, of course, these days, you know, we have a massive crisis of print journalism in that people will print what sells, you know, mm. and it's it's a rare and precious thing to find to find kind of what used to be called proper journalism, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, so it's, a, it's an interesting departure to how we're used to seeing these uh, and, and so the type of horror like zombie stroke vampire outbreaks you normally see it's always explained as well it's never explained as a mental condition is it or a semi-mental condition and this, yeah, is, this is what he's getting strange. Right hmm. I, I do think that it, it it's difficult I, I do have trouble establishing the rules of this world sometimes with the outbreak because he often says the difference between the living ones and the dead ones and it's hard to get a handle sometimes on what that is because he doesn't go into it in detail and I also think sometimes with the fact that he's got such a fortified house and that he needs to keep sort of repairing it every day to survive I sometimes struggle to work out how you get from the outbreak to the fortified house without him getting killed yeah it's interesting isn't it was there some sort of you know did the neighbour did it only only quickly only only slowly leak out that you know there's a living guy inside this ear house mm, um, yeah. amongst you know the vamp- the vampire grapevine whatever that would look like <laughs> yeah um and uh, but then there's there is the whole question um of like you know why do they only kind of pull at the boards he's nailed up over the windows and stuff mm. why do they only throw rocks at the side of the house why don't they set it on fire or mm. why don't they what, you know, have they lost the capacity to operate door handles? Hmm. Um, or, you know, you know, and but I think the reason I'm still with the book on that particular question is that he himself asks those questions. So I yeah, kind of, yeah. I know that they're not just plot holes. They are something that's been considered. I, if they don't pay off, I'm going to be pretty pissed. <laughs> but um, but uh, for now, I'm a bit sort of like, well, you know, uh, at least he's acknowledged where the holes in his rules currently are. Mm, yeah. Uh, time for another uh, sudden movement in the plot. As chapter 15, he's out hunting for Ben Cortman. And he actually enjoys this now, he says. And he's almost kind of... He wants to find him and kill him because he uh, is he's sort of the main antagonist to him at the moment. But yeah. he also thinks he might regret it a bit when he does because he's enjoying trying to find him so much and he says that Cortman seems to hide better than the rest of them 
and all the other all the other vampires who appear tend to be strangers from outside and he seems to yeah. find them quite easily and kill them in the daytime but he just yeah. can't seem to find Cortman and we got an example of this when he read, led all the zombies around the, the block a while back yeah. and he came back to the house and Cortman was there hiding waiting for him and yeah. um there's a, I don't know, there was a bit of a sense of the sort of respect of your enemy here a little bit and <laughs> his, how he's enjoying the, the struggle. And he even says that he doesn't consider Cortman a, a real threat anymore. And he yeah. says it's a neg- negligible threat now, the thought that he's, Cortman actually wants to kill him because yeah. he doesn't believe that Cortman has the ability to do that. So he feels like he's just waiting to, to win the game, really. Oh, that's interesting. So he's in this—he's in this place where he's like, "I need a reason to carry on going." Therefore, so does Cortman. Therefore, mm. he's not going to kill me because I'm the reason he keeps playing. No, I don't think that. I don't think it's that. I think it's he—he's so confident in himself now, Neville, that he doesn't think Cortman has remote the remotest chance of having the ability to kill him now. He I quite it's like so, the idea so easy to defend. <laughs> I quite like that the idea of, of him being sort of so incredibly cocky in the face of like in the face of the apocalypse the last thing you expect somebody to become is like cocky but mm. but in this particular instance he's like I can take that man any hour any day any time <laughs> bring it on I'm the man I'm the man you know and just you know doing a little chicken strut around his totally wrecked front room with his slashed mural and it's you know, whiskey soaked into the carpet and it's piles of broken glass. Hmm, (laughs) But I'm the man! (laughs) Uh, In the middle of his hunt for Cortman this day, he is interrupted because, I mean, look of luck, after seeing, I thought the dog was good, he sees a a woman walking through through a field in the middle of the day. Another survivor. And he's not had any contact with anybody since this since the world went to shit. He, can't, he can almost can't believe it, can he? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then we're into this. He says, he shouts hello to her. She obviously runs away. And he chases... <laughs> you would, chas- wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. And he chases her down and, and gets in this fight with her, uh, which ends with sort of him saying, you know, what is she? basically she tries to fight, fight him off. And at first he doesn't do anything, and then he ends, he ends up punching her. And then he says to her, "What are you afraid of?" And there's this acceptance, even in the retelling of it, that the way he says it sounds really cold, and it says completely devoid of warmth. And she answers yeah. that her name's Ruth. But this this isn't a scene of two survivors finally finding each other and coming together uh, with this sudden outburst of joy, is it? It's something altogether more disturbing yeah I don't know about you in this bit uh, with Ruth but were you really nervous as this scene played out as he's chasing after her right like how high a level of trust did you have in Robert uh, Robert Neville as a, as a protagonist right now because we've seen before that, that there is a kind of um, sexually broken kind of bit of him which has resulted as you know from the death of his wife and the whole situation with the the vampires in the world you know like like you know he he very nearly leaves the house so many times because of these vampire women kind of striking these poses Mm. um you know there is a there is a kind of disconnect there between kind of 
like between sex and joy which could even tend towards violence and then he starts chasing this woman yeah. there was there was a bit in the back of my head which was nervous about that what did you think definitely yeah and that's where a lot of this tension comes from you just you're you're fearful for just how far he's going to go when he catches her and just what his reaction is going to be because you you always get this sense through the book of how he's unhinged and he is a, going a little bit crazy but you can't really you can't really know what extent he's crazy because he's telling you the story until he meets somebody else so this is almost a real litmus test now of just just how mad has has he become and yeah. if and if the answer is very very crazy then there's you know there's no there's no guarantees as to what he will or won't do in this situation. And Absolutely, that's, that that's part of the fear from from Ruth as well, isn't it? Yeah, and well, and I think I think that she's very astute there, not knowing anything about him, but just knowing what it must do to somebody to live alone in a world that's had this happen to it. Hmm. You know, she runs away, and you're in this again. This is just absolutely spectacular writing, because on the one hand, you're scared for her. And on the other hand, you're scared for him mm. because you don't want him to carry on being as alone as he's been because you've experienced in kind of gut-wrenching detail and depth how bad that's been for him. And then and then there's this opportunity for that to stop. And of course he runs after it. You know, you can completely see why. But there's mm. still a bit in the back of your head where you're like, yeah, but I don't, you know, I don't think you're all there. I don't think you, you know, I don't think you're well. And so mm. I don't know what you will do out of that sickness as a result of that. It's yeah. absolutely such a ballsy thing to do with a protagonist. Yeah, and as you're reading it, there's a part of you thinking, you know, as, as, as she's looking at him and he looks a bit crazy and his voice is devoid of warmth and you're almost wanting to say, yeah, but he, he is a good guy and he could you could bring him back from that if you, if, um, if you sort of both spend some time together, but... At the same time, you you can understand how she's got every reason just to try and get the hell away because he seems crazy. Absolutely, yeah. So so chapter sixteen, they go back to the house, and his chief concern, actually, uh, Neville's now is that she might actually still be a vampire. There may be some kind of mutation in the disease, or yeah. she may have just be sort of a, an unusual case. But he has got to work out whether she's dangerous or not. Uh, and she obviously f is terrified of him as well. Um, yeah. He 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 locks her in the, a bed in a bedroom and lets her sleep. He's not doing himself any favors, is he? In the in the in the I'm not a crazy abductor kind yeah, of brain it, cases. He's not. But again, from his point of view, it's kind of prudent because if she is a vampire, you don't want her wandering around the house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can show this is the vampire suite. Yes, all the locks are on the outside. Yeah, no, I know it. Just a thing, just a quirk of mine, you know. But I mean, actually, isn't there a, an interesting parallel there between you know the sort of "Welcome to my home" thing of Dracula, where you know you go into his house, but it's all set up to turn you into a prisoner. Mm. Um, you know, where it's the vampire who does that, and here it's the guy who's definitely not a vampire who does that. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, so, oh, there's an interesting little little thing there, isn't there? And, and all underlain with this total creepiness. Really, really weird. 
Yeah, and the thing that really struck me with this whole passage as well is the the flat sort of tone of his thoughts, and yeah, that there's no that you can see how that having not been in contact with anyone for so long that sense of empathy and humanity has been rubbed away from him and and you're thinking this is going to be a this is going to be a real obstacle for these two having any kind of um contact with each other in the long term she's going to just try and get away from him as quickly as possible and he is he's struggling to see her as human isn't he and that makes it very da- makes him very dangerous as well yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he does this test where he he sticks a load of garlic in her face, and she recoils, and he thinks that's proof that she's a vampire, and he goes away, and then he sits down, and sort of his humanity side almost comes back a bit. He thinks, well, actually, that's probably the reaction that anyone would have if you stick a load of garlic <laughs> yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's this borderline crazy, and and he asks her. In this flat voice, as to, he finally, it's it's funny again. It's how how he's operated all the way through the book on his own is sees a problem, takes it in stages, finds a solution, and moves on. Mm. And he finds a solution here. He thinks, well, I can't work out through the garlic because that could happen to anybody. I could check her blood. So he thinks, ah, yeah. So he asks in this just flat voice, <laughs> "Can I take a sample of your blood?" And obviously she. She freaks out and tries to get away from him again. Unbelievable. I mean, it's such a well-written scene, but you can totally see why they took it out of the film. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And it's interesting that she seems more normal. Mm. And, I mean, she's borderline suicidal, so let's just put a pin in that, but it's on one side. But apart Mm. from that, she's, um, she's not as crazy as him. And it seems that because she seems, she says that she was with her, uh, like was it her husband or um for a long time and he's only recently died so you can see that she would be more in touch with her humanity still because she's had this this human interaction for longer yeah yeah i i tell you there's an interesting little thing that turns that, that that occurs to me here is that so they must have survived for quite a long time either by total dumb luck extreme violence or maybe they thought they were immune as well and it turned out that they were just slowly coming down with the thing mm. you know like hey, maybe how do you mean well maybe there's something like you know like you know this is 10 months in you'd they can't possibly have avoided vampires all of that time no you know without somehow be, you know exposing themselves to the um to the infectious agent whatever it is dust blood germs whatever um mm. So maybe they thought they were immune too, and then it turned out slowly that they weren't. Maybe in Neville's yeah. future is slow infection, which of course yeah. would be even worse, wouldn't it? Well, it seems, I mean, she says that she saw her husband sort of ripped apart in front of her or, or killed in front of her. Oh, so, yes, of course. Sorry. So, so, yeah. But but maybe maybe there was just this crazy dumb look of, of them both, both husband and wife somehow being immune um mm. which would be you know extremely unusual but not impossible i suppose yeah uh, so oh i mean yeah she could be saying husband meaning this guy that she's been with since obviously this is the 50s yeah. so you would say yeah. husband wouldn't you regardless yeah of whether i suppose so yeah yeah that's so shortly true. after it finished um so 
so yeah maybe, maybe there's something there but mm. it seems that once you're immune then a, a bite doesn't do it does it you have to be killed by the because mm. Robert's been uh, Neville Robert Neville's been bitten and he's fine yeah um, so uh, the, the, the chapter mm. ends with she wants to leave but he won't let her because it's dark now and he says if yeah. you go out now you'll be killed I can't let you do it and she says you know I don't really care either way yeah. but um, but he keeps her inside effectively for her own safety I mean there's danger within and danger without for her isn't it it's a yeah. hopeless situation yeah but yeah. Uh, that's that's where we leave it for, for today on a, another sort of semi cliffhanger I suppose absolutely it's just been so tense all the way through and not in a not in a cheap way I think in a way that's been just really brought you into the heart of the character's experience I just I tell you what every page that goes by I'm more impressed with this book at the moment I think it's fantastic mm, yeah I'm, I'm really enjoying it on, on another read through and mm. uh, yeah highly recommend it if you haven't read it yourselves yet I mean you've, you've basically got almost two-thirds of the book down now throughout discussion but anyway <laughs> um, if you are reading it and uh, you want to get involved in the feedback which uh, will be coming up at the end of the next cast once we've finished the book send any thoughts you have on the book to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com or you can get us on twitter at sharkliveroil so obviously next week we're going to be going from chapter 17 to the end of the book there's not much left now to be honest so we'll get the conclusion uh and we'll find out once and for all hopefully what's been going down here in the world of uh i am legend and we'll also do a bit of comparison with the film version and uh go through a few reviews and feedback we will i think that's uh i think with i think but unless you've got anything else to say on this section of the book dave i think that's as uh, no just like essentially got no fingernails left <laughs> it's just <laughs> It's ridiculous. Fantastic writing. Mm. Well, hopefully, you can stick it out for another few chapters and. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> and we'll go from there. But until then, until next until week. Until then. See you uh, later. Enjoy the rest of it. See you later. Thank you. I will.